The information in today's episode is not to be used as medical advice. If you are currently struggling with or dealing with something out of the ordinary, we highly recommend talking directly to your provider. Welcome to the Flow State Podcast, where we're all about finding balance. We're your hosts, Monica Groney and Nora Candido. Now let's get into the flow. Welcome back, Flow State Podcast listeners. Today we have a very special guest. I'm personally so excited. If you've been following along on my personal Instagram, you know that I've been diving in deep to the book Roar, where Stacey Sims talks all about how women are not small men and truly a topic I'm super passionate about. So Stacey, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversations. Yeah. Want to start off just by sharing a little bit about your background and how you got into this work that you're doing today. Oh gosh, just by the nature of being, I think, a female athlete and wanting to know more, but really digging in as an academic and finding that there weren't really answers for women and most of the guidelines and protocols and everything that we know from how to train, how to eat, how to recover has been based on the cis male model. And when I was an undergrad and I was getting the answers of well, we don't know enough about men. Why do we want to study women? Or women are anomaly because they have a menstrual cycle. They're too difficult to study. I was like, yeah, that doesn't sit very well. So it kind of pushed me through the academic career and along with the sporting career, having to answer those questions that I had and my friends had or teammates or coaches and having the opportunity to do that. That is amazing. I think We talk a lot on the podcast about how there's just not enough research a lot of the times. And it's so amazing to experience and see someone like yourself really digging in and creating some of that research that needs to get done. So thank you for doing that. Oh, thanks. Okay, so one of the places that I want to start today is, of course, you've really coined the term women are not small men. And because of this, we shouldn't train like a man. Can you just kind of explain why that is? Why we shouldn't train like a man. For the most part, we have sex differences from in utero. So we know from like stress responses, the female fetus will survive better than a male fetus under extreme stress. And this causes some epigenetic changes. And then at birth, we know that there are sex differences from a cellular level. And this affects things like muscle architecture, the way that women versus men fuel their bodies regardless of sex hormones how strong bones are, how wide our cue angle is, how big our hearts are, how big our lungs are, our respiratory rate, our resting heart rate, even things like the basic resting heart rate algorithm and a lot of the wearables are based on male data. But we look at women, we have a longer time between QRS intervals. That means we have a longer rest period between heartbeats, but that's not taken into account. So even the, you know, how do you determine what your max max heart rate is, is based on, again, algorithms and equations that are based on men. So everything through, like from those cellular sex differences, all the way up to epigenetic exposure of estrogen and progesterone. And then that invokes even additional changes that we have to be aware of at puberty. Then when we get to perimenopause and then menopause, we have other changes again. It's crazy. Like, you know, this stuff was not taught in my education, becoming a dietitian, and it's so invaluable. Like, we need to be supported, we need to know these differences, because we shouldn't be treated the same. 
like every single recommendation, whether that's even medication dosing and all of these things that boil down, our bodies are going to use those things differently. Like this is such a broader, you know, it's much more than just our hormones, but I think you bring a lot of really important things to light. I'm even curious thinking, maybe we can touch on this later about HRV, because that's something that I've really been diving into. And I'm curious to know, in your opinion, if we're looking more at men's data when it comes to HRV, even as well. Short answer, yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. And just for anyone listening, HRV is heart rate variability. If you have a whoop or an aura ring, you know, those that data is provided. And I was going to say the same thing, just hearing the respiratory rate, like, is HRV different for women? It sounds like the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, but I will put a caveat in with whoop because I've been working with them and they are aware of it and have changed their algorithms to then give information to women based on the autonomic nervous system change that happens in the high hormone phase. Because after ovulation, when progesterone comes up, we have a downgrade in our vagal response. So that means we're more sympathetically driven, tired, but wired. Our respiratory rate goes up. Our heart rate goes up. We have different sleep architecture, more disturbances. And we did some early studies with WHOOP data, and we can demonstrate these changes across a natural cycle and an OC cycle. And they're like, holy shit, there's something here. So they really put so much effort into the women's performance thing. And I think they might be the only wearable that is actually making the effort to not shrink and pink the algorithms, but to actually make female specific and give recommendations based on it. I mean, real quick, let's just touch on, does that affect recovery? And how does that affect recovery in terms of this algorithm change? Hi there, it's your host, Monica. If we haven't met before, highly recommend you go back to season one and listen to the episode where I share my PMDD story. One of the reasons that I'm interrupting the episode right now is that I wanted to share a little bit about Maria. Maria is the menstrual wellness brand that I founded after finding out that I had PMDD and was struggling. I wanted to find a holistic root cause solution to help me feel better and nutritional supplementation gave me the foundation to heal. That's why I developed the PMS Elixir with our amazing team of medical advisors. The PMS Elixir is a drinkable multivitamin that truly provides the essential vitamins and minerals needed to provide you that foundational level of nutrition and give you a base to heal from. Our medical team has hand-selected the nutrients their forms, their quantities, so that this multivitamin is not only delicious, but is also providing you a therapeutic grade dose of the exact nutrients you need. If you are interested in trying the PMS Elixir, head to the website www.mareawellness.com and use the code FLOWPOD, F-L-O-W-P-O-D, for 15% off your first month. Truly, these nutrients were a game changer for me, and they are now supporting thousands of women, allowing them to have healthier and happier periods. All right, back to the episode. 
Yeah, when we look at recovery and we're looking at the output that a wearable gives us, right? It'll perceive you as not having full recovery if you have a change in your sleep architecture. So you have less slow wave sleep. You have an elevated heart rate, elevated core temperature, elevated respiratory rate, a decrease in your oxygen saturation with all the little wearable thingies that are out there. Okay, hey, you're not recovered, primarily because it's based on a time and heart rate stamp, so an impulse stamp. But when we're looking across the board for recovery, and these are natural changes, we can't rely on the algorithms that these normal wearables are putting out there and saying, hey, you're not recovered. For ourselves, we have to look our luteal phase to our luteal phase and our follicular phase and our follicular phase to find our unique trends. And the other thing about that is when you get the language of you're not recovered, mentally it's damaging because then you're like, I can't do this. I feel really flat. I'm not supposed to be going hard. But from a physiological standpoint, you could be setting a PR. But because you've read this and the algorithm has read you like a man and said, hey, you're not recovered, then it feeds forward into promoting poor advice for women. Interesting. Yeah, we were just talking about that in terms of the sleep data that you got with our a previous guest, Anna, at, when we were talking about circadian rhythms, and it, it does it, it messes with you mentally. So that's definitely interesting to hear that, you know, whoop is taking into consideration the male versus female in terms of that. So very interesting to know. Yeah, I'm happy about it. <laughs> I've been pushing for a long time. So yeah, it's good. Okay, awesome. Coming back to the general topic that we were on, though, is yeah, <laughs> When we think about men versus women, male versus female, and we talk about training, what are the key core differences that we like should be seeing in programming for male versus female? Oh, I don't How do I start this? <laughs> Let's start with the basic idea of when we're looking at sets and reps for strength training, again, it's based on male data. And we know that women are less fatigable. So we don't need as much recovery between sets, but we need a higher dosage to get the same response. So right there, when we're looking at training from a strength training perspective, we need to think about like the typical three to five reps, three to five minutes between and go on the shorter side of the recovery and the higher side of the reps. If we're looking from a cardiovascular standpoint, if we're working with our physiology, we want to be able to push it hard and do the super high intensity work when our body is the most stress resilient, can handle the higher workloads, can recover from it. And then when our body is getting ready to shed the uterine lining, so like the five days before your period starts, we have a significant inflammatory response. We've already had a change in our immune system. We have a change in our neurotransmitters. We have a decreased ability to use carbohydrate unless we're supplying it. So there's a lot of changes that these hormones can invoke. So we should be looking at, okay, well, maybe we're not doing the sprint interval training and the high intensity workouts here. We're looking at more recovery, that 50% aerobic stuff, working technique, deload, that kind of stuff. So it's like the twofold scope. It's what are we doing from resistance training and what are the methods coming from? How do we scope that for knowing that women's architecture, muscle architecture, muscle metabolism, fatigability is different? And then from a cardiovascular standpoint, how that changes across the menstrual cycle or an OCP cycle. So that's a big picture. And so a lot of what you're saying, too, is like basically this concept of syncing your cycle with your training. In terms of luteal phase, you are doing more restorative, less hit high intensity. And one of the things that I keep coming across when we're seeing people talk about the cycle sync training is this luteal phase and menstrual phase of promoting walking, yoga, restorative moments, even in the menstrual phase. But our menstrual phase is part of our follicular phase. So what is your belief on this? And 
can we kind of like bust some of this? Of course. So a lot of the misconception that's out there is just dividing it into follicular and luteal phases, right? So we know that we have the bleed phase or the menstrual phase, which is five to seven days. We have the mid follicular phase, which is the rest of the follicular phase leading up to ovulation. You have the ovulatory phase. Then you have early luteal phase, which is right after ovulation. And then the late luteal phase, which is around the three to five days before your period starts. I hear so many people going, oh, you can't do anything in the luteal phase. I'm like, that is not what this means. What it means is that the three to five days before your period starts in the late luteal phase, when your body is the most compromised, this is where you want to look at doing more deload and recovery work. But that does not mean that in the early to mid luteal phase that you're still doing the same thing. This is a time to work on that top end aerobic capacity, to work on sets of eight instead of sets of six and resistance training. You can do high intensity interval training, not sprint interval training. And there's so many other things that you can do that's going to work with your physiology, not just sit on your ass and do nothing, which I've heard a lot of people say, oh, you should be totally recovering during the luteal phase. It's like, no, that's like two weeks of a woman's month. And that is not what this is about. And the other aspect that people really need to understand is tracking their own cycles, because you can have an app or something that's telling you what you should be doing based on general physiology. But that might not be applicable to you and how your hormones are making you feel. Because if someone says, hey, you want to really recover on this day, and you're like, what are you talking about? I feel fantastic. I'm going to go hit it hard. Then you should, because that means that your hormones have dropped or they're not affecting you the same way that the general scope has predicted. So yeah, let's bust that right there. You can still train hard in luteal phase. You just have to be a little bit more cognizant that you have to supply more carbohydrate if you're doing intensity. You want to increase your protein intake because there's a 12% increase in protein needs. We know that your resting metabolism has gone up a little bit because you're building tissue, but that does not mean you're compromised in a delicate flower. And same thing for the bleeding phase, right? People are like, oh, I can't do anything. I'm in the bleeding phase. If you're someone who has heavy menstrual bleeding or has significant cramps in the first few days, yeah, we're not going to tell you to go do sprint interval training and heavy, heavy lifting. We want to promote that because from a physiological standpoint, when those hormones have dropped, this is when your body is really primed to take on load. But again, it's that individual scope. We do know someone who has significant cramps. If they do a couple of 20-second intervals, that feeds forward to promoting more anti-inflammatory responses, so it helps with the cramping. And it's that pervasive sociocultural idea over the menstrual cycle that women can't do anything. And that's another thing that we all have to bust, which we're trying to do through these conversations. 100%. Yeah, that's something Monica and I have talked about for both of us too, is like, As soon as our cycle starts, we feel our energy uptick. And it's like those hormones are at that lowest point where we might feel most comparable to a male. Our testosterone is increasing. We can really harness that energy if you feel good. And I think the biggest difference for individuals when it comes to these recommendations is where your hormone balance, I'm putting this in quotations, is at. So for somebody that is working to heal their hormones, maybe their cycle is completely missing or absent, or it's irregular, when those transitions or maybe imbalances are occurring, (laughs) how do we look at exercise in that light? So if I'm working with someone who's amenorrheic or coming back from relative energy deficiency in sport, we totally drop volume and we work on strength and strength 
specifically because we want to build lean mass. We want to get central nervous system activated and firing. We want to make sure that we're keeping bone. And we also want to make sure that body composition doesn't change into a negative factor, which then affects mental capacity. So heavy lifting and resistance training, functional strength, all of these things are really beneficial and they're not fuel depleting. When we start adding in the cardiovascular work, that's where you get the uptick of cortisol. You get the like the perturbance in the hypothalamus. We have the fuel depleting states, and that's what compounds the problem. And once we start to really like pull back on that intensity from the cardiovascular standpoint, increase the resistance training, we start to see really good positive results. And it's kind of empowering for these women that are like, hey, I didn't know that I could actually do this well and eat this much and still maintain a good body composition. So that's the very first step that we do. And in in that, we're also increasing calorie intake because we're not having fuel depletion. I think that's so important for women to hear, particularly just because we're we're never really introduced to strength training. I don't feel like, I feel like that is a man's world. And a lot of women are shown and seeing these long and lean and Pilates and yoga and really leaning out our bodies, right? We're like on the cardio machines and we're really, we see that world and we don't see the women doing the weightlifting, the strength training. And it's so important for us because of how our hormones interact and support muscle. Can you maybe just talk about that relationship of the estrogen and progesterone with strength and muscle building and that importance? Yeah. So on the side note with no one wanting to be in the gym, it's set up that way. It's set up to be gender specific where you sign in and they're like, oh, you're a woman. How much weight do you want to lose? Here's the cardiovascular machines. They don't direct you to the weights. But if we're looking at resistance training, it is so important from the word go, hitting puberty all the way through postmenopause. When we talk about the hormone aspect, estrogen is a woman's testosterone. So when we look specifically at how estrogen affects muscle, one, it stimulates the satellite cell or the basal cell for actual muscle development. It is tightly tied to how strong actin and myosin bind. So those are your protein filaments for muscle contraction. It's responsible for myosin. And if you want a strong contraction, you have to have estrogen for that myosin to bind with actin for strong contraction. And the third thing is when we look from a central nervous system standpoint, we have this little gap between the nerve and the muscle, and it's called the gap junction. And in order for a signal to pass, you need acetylcholine. Estrogen is responsible for having a lot of acetylcholine stored in there for this gap junction to actually work and have a lot of fibers innervated. So we look, it's a step fold. Like most people say, oh, estrogen is responsible for building lean mass. So I need to eat protein and I need to have estrogen, but we also really have to understand that we need estrogen for power and we need estrogen for that pure strength that central nervous system recruit as many fibers as possible so that we can lift heavy loads. So when we're looking at our reproductive years, we are pretty good. Like we can get away with a little bit. We can get away with doing the typical hypertrophy training, those eight to 15 reps, which isn't ideal for women across the board, but it's okay. But as we get older, we need to find an external stimulus that is going to help our body adapt the way these hormones used to. Now, when we talk about progesterone, progesterone is catabolic. So it breaks lean mass down. The whole job of progesterone in the menstrual cycle is to provide building blocks for the endometrial lining. So it 
shuttles carbohydrate away from the liver and the muscle to put it into the endometrial lining, create this great glycogen storage. It also breaks down lean mass and it increases the amount of protein that's being oxidized so that it can free amino acids. So when we're looking at our protein increase, this is why, because progesterone is breaking things down. So we need to eat more protein in that high hormone phase to be able to support what estrogen can do from a lean mass standpoint. So this is another how it falls into like the cycle sync and what we're doing and how we're eating and how we're training to work with these hormones. But then when we get to that perimenopause point and menopause and the same thing in puberty, when we're having different ratios of these hormones, our body's trying to find a new baseline. This is where it's really important to keep that baseline of resistance training going. One for the functionality of central nervous system, understanding muscle contraction, Two, to keep a stimulus for building and keeping lean mass. And then for our young girls, it's giving them the confidence to have the ability to keep doing their sport because their body comp is changing, their center of gravity is changing, they're really ungangly. But if you're doing resistance training, it helps with all of those changes. Resistance training. Yeah, it's just like so mind blowing to me. I remember reading your book and learning, you know, how these hormones affected the ability to build muscle, maintain muscle and how it changed as we aged. I'm, you know, coming into my mid thirties and started to notice a lot of changes in my body and was just like, why am I not able to build muscles easily? Why am I noticing these crazy composition changes that, you know, it used to be so easy to maintain and it all made sense when I read your book. And so I think it's so important for people to hear this and the importance of thinking about muscle in a way where we're not bulking up, we're not becoming these bulky, like gym, we're not going to start grunting, anything like that. It's really just for our longevity and for our bone support and for all of these really health and wellness benefits. And I know you primarily and really focus on athletes, but maybe can you just speak to like, this isn't just for athletes, right? Yeah, that is the misconception that I just focus on athletes. I've ventured out since I've retired and I like pass information to my friends who are now coaches and I work with athletes, but my general focus is general pop, right? Women, well, no, I should take that back. I work with athletes because if you work out on purpose and you exercise on purpose, you're an athlete. You're an athlete. Yeah. So every woman listening is an athlete because they work out on purpose. So yeah, now I forgot your question. General person. I'm just trying to like bring a point across the point that you don't have to be a competitive athlete. You don't have to be running a race. You don't have to be training for something to incorporate strength training. I guess the biggest example I can show on this is we see all this public health information about resistance training and the 150 minutes of exercise and two days a week of resistance training. And then there are people who are like, wait a second, what kind of resistance training are we doing for older women? And it's not quite right when we're looking at these 15 to 20 rep sets because that's not building, that's depleting and it's tearing down. So there's been a couple of recent studies where there have been women who are 70 to 80 years old and they put them in resistance training classes, but power-based. So they're looking at relative 75 to 80% one rep max and they're doing six to eight reps. And the outcome was they built lean mass, they got stronger bones, and they had better proprioception, so their falls risk decreased. So if they were to step off a curb wrong, they were able to catch themselves. And we know that in the older population, if you fall, then that's pretty much done with the ticket, right? So when we're looking at that longevity aspect, you stir early, and then it becomes a habit. 
And when you hit your mid thirties, your early forties, you do realize how hard it is to build and maintain mass. So build it early. So then you can maintain it as you get older. And it is really, really difficult for women to get bulky unless they eat a lot. So when you're seeing like the CrossFit athletes, you're seeing the people who are in the gym, they are eating four to 4,500 calories a day minimum, right? And they're eating all the time. And bodybuilders, they don't do high intensity cardio at all. They might like do 20 or 30 minutes of ultra, ultra slow on the bike pedaling as their cardiovascular work. But as soon as you add any kind of cardiovascular intensity, it strips you down. It's so hard for women to get bulky. I'd love if we could speak to just like the importance of muscle mass too. Like it's an active, almost organ-like system. So I think when we talk about the benefits of resistance training, like why would individuals want to have more lean tissue any age group? Like what are the benefits of that when in, in terms, you know, things I think of as better blood sugar control, having better insulin sensitivity, which is going to support our hormones, like everything literally compounds. What are some other things that you speak to? Well, you know, just the stability and proprioception, like I said, but metabolic control, we see a decrease in serial fat mass with more lean mass you have. It is beneficial because we know that women who are leaner and have less obesity tend to have less issues with menopausal symptoms going through menopause. And again, it helps with bone strength as well, because you have multi-directional stress when you're doing muscle contraction, and that's better than running. People are like, oh, I need to go for a run for my bones. It's like, actually, no, you need to do resistance training and jump training because it's that lean mass and the control of that multi-directional stress that actually creates a signal for stronger bones. So yeah, lean mass, it's good. And the other thing that people don't quite get when we talk about protein, right? And you might have encountered this, Nora. When we look at the amount of protein that women are supposed to eat, they're like, I can't eat that much protein. And there was this really interesting study that a friend posted where there were 40 women who were normal weight but obese, so the skinny fat, and they were sedentary. And the only intervention they did was increase the protein intake in one group to 1.6 grams per kilo. And the other group stated their status quo of 0.8. At the end of a 12-week intervention, those who had the higher protein intake without any kind of exercise, they're all sedentary, recomped their body to have a healthy amount of lean mass. So protein is super important as well as the resistance training for that lean mass. And like you said, when you have more lean mass, better metabolic control, which feeds forward to reducing all the risk factors later in life. Yeah, I think it's crazy. Like the RDA is so low and that is just ingrained in people's heads. Like, I don't know where this comes from. So the RDA for women comes from a group of sedentary older men. And they were going, okay, well, they have about the same body composition. So this is what we're going to do. And Mike, wait a second, you're taking 60 year old men and getting a recommendation from, you know, nitrogen exchange from 60 year old sedentary men and applying it to women who are, you know, half that age or even younger and have different muscle, muscle requirements. And you're saying that that's what they need. 
They didn't even look at women and do nitrogen balance in women when they came up with an RDA. So this is why we're going in and we're doing more studies for women and we're finding that, you know, baseline recreational women need to hit that 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilo. And if you're resistance training, it's 2 to 2.5. And then even women who are really, really trying to build lean mass for times of heavy competition, they can go up to 3.0 grams per kilo without any kind of ill health effects. So, yeah. Yeah, I know this is something Monica is <laughs> definitely very passionate and I am as well. And I think, you know, for individuals in the States, sometimes it's helpful hearing like that one gram per pound of lean mass. And that can be a little bit harder to delineate. But Monica, I'll let you. <laughs> yeah, I went into this deep last fall after, again, picking your book up off of my shelf and really digging into it and realized I was under eating protein. Like I said, you know, was hitting my early to mid 30s kind of noticing muscle was harder to maintain. I took a look at my nutrition, strength training regularly, but like, what was I eating? And I was only eating about 50 grams a day. Ah! So for 30 days, I committed to eat 125 grams of protein a day. And just for anyone listening, like, so much changed for me really quickly. Energy was way up. Brain fog was way down. I was way more satiated, which so I wasn't having these blood sugar dips. I was eating more often. And I think all of those things made such a huge difference. And within weeks, how my body looked, how my body moved, it felt completely different. What else? Is there anything else that I think cravings, like I know you said feeling more satiated, but I think that also helps with cravings. Because if you're not experiencing those blood sugar dips and and peaks and valleys, you're able to have that more consistent energy. And then your body's not turning to quick carbohydrates, that quick energy source, because you're able to have that lasting energy much longer. So uh, yeah, Super passionate about more women experiencing that because I think it's so important. You know, I immediately was like calling my mom who's in her early 60s and was like, you need to up your protein. Like, you know, I I think this is a message that more women need to hear. We obsess over carbs and fats, but we're not obsessing about protein. And it's so, so crucial. Yeah. Do you do you get the question of, but you can't absorb more than 25 grams of protein. Why do you want me to eat more? I'm like, mm-hmm. yes. Can you maybe talk to that? Because I know from the research and a lot of listening that I've done in the protein space after all of this happening, you know, I hear like, try to hit 30 grams in a meal for protein synthesis. So maybe we can talk about protein synthesis, what that means, why we need a certain amount of protein to initiate that as well as yes, can you absorb more than 25 grams? <laughs> Yeah. So when people start asking about, can I absorb more than 25 grams and hear, oh, no, you can't. It's because it comes from that 20 grams post-exercise, right? And when you're looking at the post-exercise research, anything over the 20 in men isn't really utilized for muscle protein synthesis. But that doesn't mean the protein isn't used. It goes into amino acid circulation and used in other aspects in the body. So other systems in the body. For women, we need closer to that 30 gram for that leucine tipping point within the muscle post-exercise to trigger muscle protein synthesis. And any kind of extra after that, again, goes into circulation and is used by the body. So that's that whole like, well, I can't absorb more than 20, 25. Well, for muscle protein synthesis in men, it's that 
you know, after 2025, they see that there's not any more stimulus for lean mass development. But that doesn't mean that protein is wasted. It means it goes to a circulation pool. It goes to neurotransmitters. It goes to the nervous system. So there's a lot of other places amino acids are used. And for women, it's that 30 gram mark. We see post-exercise in young women, it's 30 grams. Post-exercise in perimenopause, post-menopause, it's 40 grams because you need that extra leucine to get into the muscle for that tipping point. Yeah, and just for anyone listening too, so when we talk about amino acids, protein is made up of amino acids. And I think this gets really confusing because of how food labels have labeled protein and it's just blanket protein. Whereas, you know, you see fats broken down into trans fats, saturated fats. There are different types of proteins. So this is what Stacy is talking about with these amino acids and leucine being the one that's really, really important for muscle and protein synthesis, correct? Correct. And collagen protein is not protein for lean mass development. That is a marketing thing. It makes me so mad. I'm like, that is not protein. <laughs> I just busted this myth on my Instagram and so many people's minds were blown. So collagen protein, it doesn't have all of the essential amino acids. And which one is missing? Tryptophan, is that right? So really it's the helix of the collagen proteins, right? And so those are the ones that are either absorbed or create a, an immune response. But when the helix is absorbed, it's not broken down into your basic amino acids for muscle protein development. It goes direct to the target tissue of cartilage or ligaments and stuff. So when we're looking at, it's only three amino acids that are involved in the helices that create collagen. Very, very interesting. And just real quick too, do you mind just explaining muscle protein synthesis and what that means just for our audience who isn't isn't aware. Yeah, so when your body goes to create muscle, the way it, it happens is there is a feedback mechanism from your brain that feeds forward down into little proteins within the muscle itself that then says, hey, we need to create more muscle cells. And in order to get that trigger, you need that amino acid leucine. Because leucine it feeds forward and feeds back. When there's a lot of leucine available with other essential amino acids, then it does trigger in the muscle to be like, hey, we need to repair and we also need to create more muscle proteins. So that's what we mean by muscle protein synthesis. Perfect. Thank you. And we definitely dove into this of talking about protein needs in the different phases. And so when we talk about our high hormone phase, which is our luteal phase, so before we menstruate, there is a need there for more protein, correct? Yes, yes. We say around 12% increase in your protein needs. And again, this is because progesterone shuttles a lot of those free-floating amino acids to build uterine lining. It breaks down more lean mass. It doesn't allow your body to really put emphasis in building lean mass because it's like, hey, you ate all this protein. I'm going to take these amino acids and build this uterine lining. But if you're eating more protein, then it takes what it needs and then has extra left over to then have the lean mass and recovery and repair that we want. Yeah. It, physiologically, it makes sense. If we were pregnant, your body's literally using its own stores to create another human being. So like, there's a purpose for this, but it, there's something that we can do to help combat and just preserve that lean mass when we're in this higher hormone phase. So then when you're in your lower hormone phase, that first half, then we can really be utilizing that protein more effectively, right? Exactly. Yep. 
Additionally, too, I mean, in the luteal phase, people, that's when they experience cravings. And I think the satiation part can also come into effect. I know for me, that's what I've experienced. And protein can play a great role in kind of filling that that space and that need. Yeah, and that has to do with neurotransmitters. So when we're looking at estrogen's effect on serotonin, and we see when estrogen goes up, you have a hypersensitization of serotonin receptors. And when you are having a lot of break, muscle breakdown, you're having more amino acids that are going into the uterine lining, or we have more free tryptophan that might cross blood-brain barrier can create more serotonin. So when we're looking at cravings and we want that boost feeling that serotonin gives us, if we're eating more protein, then it does help increase serotonin and the brain is receptive to it because we have this increased density and sensitivity of our serotonin receptors. Which must play a role in mood regulation as well. Exactly. Crazy. I think too, when the topic of protein comes up, there's usually a heated discussion on the best forms of protein. I'd be curious to hear your opinion on different forms of protein. So with regards to real food or plant-based or animal-based or... I think both when we talk about food and then of course when we talk about supplementation. Yes, so really both ends of the spectrum. So we're not as smart as mother nature as much as people think they are and try to create all these supplements. But when you're eating real food, whole foods, there's a whole bunch of things within the food that helps all the macronutrients and micronutrients be absorbed. So if you can go real food first, that's the best option. But there is a time and a place for supplementation, right? So say you have an early morning session and you have to get straight to work and you're like, I don't have time to sit down and have eggs on toast, but I do have time to put some protein into some almond milk or whatever and have that on my go as I get to breakfast, right? So there's a time and place for it. When we look at the differences of the supplements that are out there, there are definitely differences in the quality. So if we look at most of the inexpensive whey proteins, they're made from whey concentrate and an 80% whey protein. And both of those are really low quality and super cheap. We want to look for a whey isolate or whey hydrolysate because these are the highest amount of bioavailable protein. And what I mean by that is amino acids. From a plant-based aspect, we look at pea protein isolate. And we say pea protein isolate because it's right on the tipping point of having enough leucine to create that trigger in the muscle. So it has 2.7 grams, whereas whey has three. So it's right there at that tipping point. With regards to what you use, it's whatever fits in your lifestyle, right? So if you're full vegan and you're like, I need something, pea protein isolate, oh, it's too flowery. I don't want pea protein. Well, then you can look at combining hemp and rice to get a very similar amount of amino acids that pea protein or whey isolate would give you. So when we're talking about protein, I don't want to put any caveats on it. I want people just to go, I need protein and I like this and I'm going to use it. I like that. Yeah. And so is there higher quality in food as well? What's your opinion, I guess, animal-based versus plant? Well, everything's measured from the egg white. So if you're looking at protein bioavailability, they'll have it listed on a scale. And we'll see a lot of plant-based stuff sit at 80-ish, where an egg white is 100. And then you have dairy and animal proteins that might be higher than the egg white. But again, I'm about, well, you know, if you are eating a whole bunch of different types of plant 
based proteins and you're getting the amino acids you need, that's great. If you're someone who's like, I don't want to eat a lot, but I need protein and I eat meat, well, then you can go with the chicken breast or the fish or whatever kind of meat you want. Or you could have parboiled eggs and dairy if you don't want to go full meat orientation. When they're looking at bioavailability, again, it comes down to when you see these studies that might be posted on Asker Jukendrup's My Sports Science and talking about how slow plant proteins are compared to animal proteins, that's how fast they get into the system after exercise, right? But when we're looking at, is it resistance training exercise, it doesn't matter how long or, or how quickly it gets into the system, as long as it gets in the system. If it's fuel depleting, then you want to add some carbohydrate because then that increases the bioavailability and the way that protein is actually absorbed and brought into the system. So again, it comes down to if you are plant-based, then it's fine. You just got to make sure that you get a wide variety of different plant proteins. If you're not plant-based, that's fine too. That Go for it, you know, have whatever it is, just as long as you get your protein recommendations in. Yeah, I think that's important. I totally agree. There's so many varying opinions out there. And, you know, some people are going to be vegetarian. Some people are going to be vegan, all these things, and they should still prioritize protein. I think it, in my opinion, it becomes harder for sure. You know, you end up eating more calories to reach your protein needs, but that's just part of it. Yeah. Or the opposite happens and there's too much plant compound coming in so they get too full and then get into not meeting protein recommendations and getting into low energy availability. So it is a tight balance, right? It's like, okay, nutrient density is what it's about, right? Yeah. That's definitely my stance too. And, you know, it might be higher carbohydrate sources as well when we're leaning on more plant-based, obviously. And a lot of the work that I do is around like blood sugar balance and just teaching individuals to how to eat in appropriate order and operation to help not only the protein synthesis, but also help to stabilize that blood sugar balance too. I think a couple of questions that I get too, like one is about, you know, we've talked about that excess protein is going to be utilized in some capacity. It's not just going to be stored as fat. And I think that's a big thing to just share for individuals as they think if I'm overeating calories in general, that it's going to store as fat. And I don't agree with that. It's not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. Because again, you know, that comes from the 1980s idea of calorie in, calorie out. You have to have a calorie deficit. If you were looking at someone who's obese and sedentary, then yes, calorie deficit for sure. But when we're looking at healthy individuals, a, a protein calorie acts differently in the body than carbohydrate calories. And I'm sure that you said a gazillion things about that. And I'm just going to reiterate it too. It's like, it's the quality of the food that you're eating. It's not the total amount of calories. Yeah, absolutely. And the other question I get is like kidney concerns. You know, if I'm eating all this extra protein, do I need to be concerned about my kidneys? And yeah, I think if we're going to extremes, if you're, you know, quadrupling I don't have specific numbers when it comes to this, but I there are things that we could monitor to make sure, obviously, that your kidney numbers are staying healthy. But I don't think for the average individual, that's something that we need to be concerned about either. 
Yeah, so this was a, one of the big questions that a group from the International Society of Sports Nutrition was interested in because they all come from the strength set and they're like, well, women need to eat more protein. What's the top end that we can have? And this is the study that went up to 3.3 grams per kilo and still didn't find any kind of perturbation. Granted, they were all healthy and they didn't have any undercurrent of kidney disease or family history. But yeah, it's that fear of, oh, if I go over that one gram per pound, then I'm going to start getting some kidney issues. It's like, no, if you have family history or underlying illness, yeah, but we know that safely you can go up to that. So what is 3.3 grams per kilo? Something close to two grams per pound, something like that? Yeah, how to convert. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> And I think we talked a little bit about this already, but the difference between the branched chain amino acids versus the essential amino acids versus just leucine. And what I'm hearing and what I talk about too is the importance of getting adequate leucine concentration for that muscle protein synthesis rather than BCAAs or EAAs. But do you have a preference or like, do you think there's an appropriate use for any of those? I get people who ask, should I just be taking leucine supplements? It's like, no, because you need the other essential amino acids to help with the feedback mechanisms for leucine. Leucine is the most important amino acid for muscle protein synthesis, but you need the others to help all the feedbacks and triggers. So again, this comes back to trying to eat real food. And then if you are looking for supplementation, it's not just picking out the branch chains or picking out the leucine. It's if you have to like really dial it down, then go for essential amino acids, but preferably whole protein in a supplement form. We do know that you can use branch chain amino acids in like a hydration drink because it does help with hydration. It also helps delay some of the protein oxidation and endurance exercise, and it can help with fatigue, but it's not like a supplement that you're going to reach for to use all the time. I think that's so interesting because, you know, you see all these protein companies and stuff and they're really, really marketing BCAAs. Like I see it everywhere. And as a consumer and not someone from a nutritional background, I'm like, what the heck are these? Like I'm supposed to be taking the protein and the BCAAs. So maybe just real quick, like what are they? So branch chain amino acids is valine, leucine, and isovaline. So they're three very critical amino acids that are found in all animal proteins. And so when we talk about plant proteins being not as good as animal protein, it's because they might be a little bit low in one of those three branch chain amino acids. But when we're looking at, do I need to supplement branch chain amino acids with my protein powder? Absolutely not, because the branch chains are already in your protein powder. If we talk about vegan protein and trying to increase the amount of leucine, then you might take fermented branch chains and put it into your vegan protein to boost the total amount. But ordinarily, if you're using pea protein isolate, you don't have to do that. So if you're looking at all the push for branch chain amino acids, the efficacy for use of muscle protein synthesis is not there. We see it for delaying fatigue. We see it for boosting total intake with other things, but not as a standalone product. And they taste awful. They do. Yes, they're awful. And they're always like very awful flavored too. I hate yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And your stance on supplementing protein in general, I think, you know, from my experience, protein products are very marketed to the macho man. But I have seen them to be really beneficial in my life, like you were mentioning as just a convenient factor, you know, looking at my day to day intake and being like, I'm low today, 
I'm going to drink some protein to kind of just increase my daily limit today where I'm not really needing another meal, but I need to top up on my protein and I'll use it that way. Or like you're saying, even in the morning, don't have time for breakfast right away. I'll just drink some protein regardless of if I've trained or not. Do you see protein supplements beneficial for every person or is it just for the athlete? No, for everyone. I'm notorious for using it. Like my go-to in the morning, I'm sure people have heard before, is my protein fortified coffee. So it's like a double espresso, almond milk, protein powder, boom, out the door to go swimming or something. I've gotten my sister and my mom to use it just to boost their protein intake as well because they're like, I'm not hungry. I didn't do anything today. Still a little bit in that mentality of calorie, calorie out. But yeah, and I mean, like older people who don't have appetites or when you're in the conversion from like spring to summer and it's really, really hot and you don't have an appetite, definitely use it. And it doesn't have to be just workout oriented. It's a way of boosting your total protein intake. But the caveat there is don't reach for one of the ones that's marketed for women because most of the time it's soy protein isolate and another low quality protein powder that's marketed in shrink and paint, but it's not just go for an unflavored whey isolate or pea protein isolate and you're good to go. Love it. That's super helpful. Before we wrap up, I also just want to dive into a little bit. We've had quite a few questions around the perimenopause and menopausal state. And I know we've primarily focused on the reproductive stage today, but what are some things that we should be thinking about if we are someone who is perimenopausal or menopausal in terms of our training, how does our training need to change or what should we be mindful of with our diet in that stage? So it's the perimenopausal years that we see the biggest body composition change. And the first telling point is you might be in your early 40s and you're like, hey, what's going on? My normal training and nutrition isn't working for me. I can't just all of a sudden do X, Y, Z and lose this extra weight. And it's because your hormones are starting to shift. So When the hormones start to shift, we have a change in our gut microbiome because when we're looking at how hormones are actually used in the body, they go to the liver first and they're bound with uh, sex hormone binding globulin, which is then excreted with bile into the intestines. And then you have your gut bugs that unbind it and shoot it out in circulation. So when you start having a misstep in your hormones, not a true misstep, but a change in the ratios, you start decreasing the diversity of those gut bugs because there isn't as much of that sex hormone coming in. So you don't need as many of those gut bugs. So when we are looking as we go through and get into late perimenopause, so about the five years before you actually hit that one point in time of menopause, there's a significant decrease in the diversity, which is now promoting the body recomp that people see with increased abdominal adiposity, you're decreasing your lean mass. So you're having this change in your gut microbiome as well as a change in your hormones. So they're kind of tied together. So you're not able to build lean mass, plus you're having a change in the microbiome that is creating more body fat gain. So we look at training. This is what I said earlier. We have to look at an external stress that is going to cause the adaptations in the body that estrogen and progesterone used to help us do. So this is where we have to look at decreasing volume total volume for all the cardio lovers, sorry, we really need to decrease the volume and get out of that moderate intensity training that so many people fall into. Because when we get into moderate intensity training, and this even includes like Orange Theory or your typical 45 to 50 minute boot camp class, it's not hard enough to be hard and it's not easy enough to be easy. So when we look at it, what it's doing is it's increasing our baseline cortisol 
and it's not creating any changes or um, signals for changes of body recomp. We need to look at doing polarized training. So this is where we're looking at our true sprint interval training, where it's 30 seconds or less, full gas, 110% effort, which you might be able to do three or four at the start and work your way up to eight, short, sharp workout. And from a resistance standpoint, this is where heavy lifting comes into play. As I talked about earlier in the central nervous system effect, we need to have that central nervous system effect in order to maintain strength and power. And then the body is like, hey, wait, I'm having this nervous signal or the nerve signal to say that I'm recruiting more fibers. I better build more. So this is where that 80% or more one rep max, and you're doing those five to six reps, and you might be doing four sets of that. And it's a short hard, non-cardiovascular, but very hard workout. And this is what we need to do. We need to think about, of course, for people who love long distance stuff, I'm not saying completely take it out, but it's not your bread and butter. Your bread and butter for health and body composition help is that high intensity work and heavy resistance training. And then when we get into menopause itself, Early postmenopause, so those five years after that one point in time, you still have some estrogen receptors that are working for you. So keep doing that heavy lifting and that sprint interval training. If you're listening and you're like, well, I'm way beyond that. I'm in, I'm like eight or 10 years past that. We need to look at dose response. We know you need to do more of that sprint interval training on a regular basis in order to get the same effects. So for early postmenopause or late perimenopause, we're doing two to three sets of that sprint interval training and around three resistance training sessions a week. When we get into late postmenopause, we're looking at four sprint interval training sessions and maintaining that heavy resistance training throughout. And what about diet in terms of protein needs? You said they go up in this phase. Absolutely. We become more anabolically resistant. So muscle tissue again has that, I need more leucine to get the signal. And as Nora probably has said before, we become more insulin resistant. So protein's super important. This is where we're looking at 40 grams post-exercise. We're looking at 30 to 40 grams every meal, around 15 grams per snack, and then moderating our carbohydrate intake where we're looking at, yeah, we can use a little bit more simple-ish type carbs after training, but everything else is primarily complex veggie fruit orientation to increase that diversity of the gut bugs and to help moderate blood glucose fluctuations. Could not agree more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, we talked a ton about protein today, but I don't want us to negate the importance of for the majority and for especially pre-menopausal and any sort of hormonal shifts. Also the necessity of getting adequate carbohydrates adequate fat consumption for our hormone health. At the end of the day, we have to be adequately nourished in order for our body to just be happy. This is before we are diving into any sort of specifics, right? You know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are having, quote, period problems or hormonal issues. So I always want to make sure that we are hitting those categories too. Yeah, because if you are having menstrual cycle dysfunction, we look and if your carbohydrate intake is too low, it perturbs kispeptin. So those are in our hypothalamus, we have those two areas of kispeptin neurons. And if you don't have enough carbohydrate coming in, then your brain is going to perceive it as not enough food coming in. So I'm going to create 
Stress. Yeah, it's stress. So there goes your estrogen. There goes your luteinizing hormone. So yes, carbohydrate availability is super important. Yeah, I think that's a great caveat too, just for anyone in currently in hormonal dysfunction, having irregular periods, having heavy symptoms, like your training and your diet will probably be very different than someone who is experiencing regular periods, their hormones are balanced, they're feeling energy throughout their whole cycle, that kind of thing. So those are two different groups, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. You have provided so much good information today. I think our listeners are going to really, really love this. For anyone listening, where can they learn more about your work or learn more on all that you've shared today? We have everything that I'm doing on our website. So that's drdrstacysims.com. And then Instagram, of course, Dr. Stacy Sims. And then for some of the older set who still might be using Facebook, we're on Facebook too with Dr. Stacy Sims. <laughs> And we are just getting ready to push out a second edition of Roar. So we just are submitting the updated manuscript back to Penguin with the hopes of it being out end-ish of May, if not sooner. So watch a space. That is amazing. We will definitely share that when it does come out. Thank you so much for your time today, Stacey. Thank you for all of the work you do for all of women. We really appreciate it. Thanks. And, you know, it would just sit here in this little room of mine in Mount Maunganui if I wasn't able to come on podcasts and have great conversations with people like you. So thank you. Thank you so much. It means a lot. We will see you all next week. <laughs>